Harper Audio presents Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. The New York Times says of this recording, several stars have joined voices dividing up passages from a classic work of fiction to compelling effect. In the morning, at the first gleam of dawn, I left Wuthering Heights and returned through the snow to Thrushcross Grange. That evening I desired Mrs. Dean, my housekeeper, when she brought in supper, to sit down while I ate it, hoping sincerely she would prove a regular gossip. Well, Mrs. Dean, it will be a charitable deed to tell me something of my neighbours. I feel I shall not rest if I go to bed, so be good enough to sit and chat an hour. Oh, certainly, sir. I have with me here a little sewing to do, so I'll sit as long as you please. Before I came to live here, I was almost always at Wuthering Heights, because my mother had nursed Mr. Hindley Earnshaw, that was Harriton's father, and I got used to playing with the children. One fine summer morning, it was the beginning of harvest, I remember, Mr. Earnshaw, the old master, came downstairs dressed for a journey, and after he had told Joseph what was to be done during the day, he turned to Hindley and Cathy and me, for I sat eating my porridge with them, and he said, speaking to his son, Now, my bonny man, I'm going to Liverpool today. What shall I bring you? You may choose whatever you like, only let it be little, for I shall walk there and back sixty miles each way, and that is a long spell. Hindley named a fiddle. And then he asked Miss Cathy. She was barely six years old, but she could ride any horse in the stable, and she chose a whip. It seemed a long while to us all, three days of his absence, and often did little Cathy ask when he would be home. Mrs. Earnshaw expected him by supper time on the third evening, and she put off the meal hour after hour. There were no signs of his coming, however, and at last the children got tired of running down to the gate to look. Then it grew dark. She would have had them to bed, but they begged sadly to be allowed to stay up, and just about eleven o'clock, the door latch was raised quietly, and in stepped the master. He threw himself into a chair, laughing and groaning, and said, opening his great coat, which he had held bundled up in his arms, See here, wife, I was never so beaten with anything in my life, but you must take it as a gift of God, though it's as dark almost as if it came from the devil. We crowded round, and over Miss Cathy's head, I had a peep at a dirty, ragged, black-haired child, big enough both to walk and talk, indeed. Its face looked older than Catherine's, yet when it was set on its feet, it only stared round and repeated over and over again some gibberish that nobody could understand. I was frightened, and Mrs. Earnshaw was ready to fling it out of doors. She did fly up asking how he could fashion to bring that gypsy brat into the house when they had their own bairns to feed and fend for, what he meant to do with it, and whether he were mad. The master tried to explain the matter, but he was really half dead with fatigue, and all that I could make out, amongst her scolding, was a tale of his seeing it starving and houseless and as good as dumb in the streets of Liverpool where he picked it up and inquired for its owner. Not a soul knew to whom it belonged, and he was determined he would not leave it as he found it. Well, the conclusion was that Mr. Earnshaw told me to wash it and give it clean things and let it sleep with the children. Hindley and Cathy contented themselves with looking and listening till peace was restored. Then both began searching their father's pockets for the presents he had promised them. 
the former, was a boy of fourteen, but when he drew out what had been a fiddle, crushed to morsels in the greatcoat, he blubbered aloud. And Cathy, when she learnt the master had lost her whip in attending on the stranger, showed her humour by grinning and spitting at the stupid little thing, earning for her pains a sound blow from her father to teach her cleaner manners. They entirely refused to have it in bed with them, or even in their room. And I had no more sense, so I put it on the landing of the stairs, hoping it might be gone on the morrow. By chance, or else attracted by hearing his voice, it crept to Mr. Earnshaw's door, and there he found it on quitting his chamber. Inquiries were made as to how it got there. I was obliged to confess, and in recompense for my cowardice and inhumanity, was sent out of the house. This was Heathcliff's first introduction to the family. On coming back a few days afterwards, for I did not consider my banishment perpetual, Heathcliff bore his degradation pretty well at first, because Cathy taught him what she learnt, and worked or played with him in the fields. They both promised fair to grow up as rude as savages, the young master being entirely negligent how they behaved or what they did, so they kept clear of him. He would not even have seen after their going to church on Sundays, only Joseph and the curate reprimanded his carelessness when they absented themselves, and that reminded him to order Heathcliff a flogging and Catherine a fast from dinner or supper. But it was one of their chief amusements to run away to the moors in the morning and remain there all day, and the after-punishment grew a mere thing to laugh at. One Sunday evening, it chanced that they were banished from the sitting-room for making a noise or a light offence of the kind, and when I went to call them to supper, I could discover them nowhere. Hindley, in a passion, told us to bolt the doors and swore nobody should let them in that night. The household went to bed. In a while, I distinguished steps coming up the road and the light of a lantern glimmering through the gate. I threw a shawl over my head and ran to prevent them from waking Mr. Earnshaw by knocking. There was Heathcliff by himself. It gave me a start to see him alone. Where's Miss Catherine? No accident, I hope. At Thrushcross Grange. And I would have been there, too. But they had not the manners to ask me to stay. Well, you will catch it. You'll never be content till you're sent about your business. What in the world led you wandering to Thrushcross Grange? Cathy and I escaped from the wash house to have a ramble at liberty. Getting a glimpse of the Grange lights, we thought we'd just go and see whether the Lintons passed their Sunday evening standing shivering in corners, while their father and mother sat eating and drinking and singing and laughing and burning their eyes out before the fire. Do you think they do? Or eating sermons and being catechized by their manservant and set to learn a column of scripture names if they don't answer properly? Probably not. They're good children, no doubt, and don't deserve the treatment you receive for your bad conduct. Don't you can't, Nellie. Nonsense. We crept through a broken hedge, groped our way up the path, and planted ourselves on a flower pot under the drawing-room window. Both of us were able to look in by standing on the basement and clinging to the ledge, and we saw, oh, it was beautiful, a splendid place carpeted with crimson, and crimson-covered chairs and tables, and a, a pure white ceiling bordered by gold, a shower of glass drops hanging in silver chains from the centre, and shimmering with little soft tapers. Old Mr. and Mrs. Linton were not there. 
Edgar and his sister had it entirely to themselves. Shouldn't they have been happy? We should have thought ourselves in heaven. And now, guess what your good children were doing? Isabella, I believe she is eleven, a year younger than Cathy, lay screaming at the further end of the room, shrieking as if witches were running red-hot needles into her. Edgar stood on the hearth, weeping silently, and in the middle of the table sat a little dog shaking its paw and yelping, which from their mutual accusations we understood they had nearly pulled in two between them, the idiots. That was their pleasure, to quarrel who should hold a heap of warm fur, and each begin to cry because both, after struggling to get it, refused to take it. We laughed out right at the petted things. We did despise them. When would you catch me wishing to have what Catherine wanted, or find us by ourselves seeking entertainment in yelling and sobbing and rolling on the ground, divided by the whole room? HarperCollins is the copyright owner of this recording. HarperCollins has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kHz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright law to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214. Or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio has been provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and Associates. Network connectivity provided by UUNet Technologies and by MFS Datanet. Harper Audio presents. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. The New York Times says of this recording, several stars have joined voices dividing up passages from a classic work of fiction to compelling effect. Time passed and Catherine kept up her acquaintance with the Lintons, and, as she had no temptation to show her rough side in their company, and had the sense to be ashamed of being rude where she experienced such invariable courtesy, she gained the admiration of Isabella and the heart and soul of her brother Edgar. Acquisitions that flattered her from the first, for she was full of ambition and led her to adopt a double character without exactly intending to deceive anyone. In the place where she had heard Heathcliff termed a vulgar young ruffian and worse than a brute, she took care not to act like him. But at home she had small inclination to practice politeness that would only be laughed at and restrain an unruly nature when it would bring her neither credit nor praise. Meanwhile, as the years passed, Heathcliff, racked with jealousy of Cathy's friendship with Edgar, appeared as if possessed by something diabolical. One day, as I was rocking Harriton on my knee, Miss Cathy put her head in and whispered, Are you alone, Nellie? Yes, miss. Oh, dear. I'm very unhappy. I want to know what I should do. Today, Edgar Linton asked me to marry him, and I accepted him, Nellie. 
Be quick and say whether I was wrong. You accepted him? Then what good is it discussing the matter? You have pledged a word and cannot retract. Say whether I should have done so. Do. There are many things to be considered before that question can be answered properly. First and foremost, do you love Mr. Edgar? Who can help it? Of course I do. Why do you love him, Miss Cathy? Well, because he's handsome and pleasant to be with. Bad. Because he is young and cheerful. Bad still. And because he loves me. Indifferent coming there. And he will be rich, and I shall like to be the greatest woman of the neighborhood, and I shall be proud of having such a husband. Worst of all. And now you say how you love him. As everybody loves. You're silly, Nelly. Not at all. Answer. I love the ground under his feet and the air over his head and everything that he touches and every word that he says. I love all his looks and all his actions and him entirely and altogether. There now. And why? Nay, you are making a jest of it. It is exceedingly ill-natured. It is no jest to me. I am far from jesting, Miss Catherine. You love Mr. Edgar because he is handsome and young and cheerful and rich and loves you. But he won't always be handsome and young, and may not always be rich. He is now, and I have only to do with the present. I wish you would speak rationally. Well, that settles it. If you only have to do with the present, marry Mr. Linton. I don't want your permission for that. I shall marry him. And yet, you have not told me whether I'm right. Perfectly right. If people be right to marry only for the present... And now let us hear what you are unhappy about. Your brother will be pleased. You will escape from a disorderly, comfortless home into a wealthy, respectable one. And you love Edgar, and Edgar loves you. All seems smooth and easy. Where is the obstacle? In whichever place the soul lives, in my soul and in my heart, I'm convinced I'm wrong. This is very strange. I cannot make it out. It's my secret. But if you will not mock at me, I'll explain it. I can't do it distinctly, but I'll give you a feeling of how I feel. If I were in heaven, Nellie, I should be extremely miserable. Because you are not fit to go there, all sinners would be miserable in heaven. I dreamt once that I was there, and that heaven did not seem to be my home. And I broke my heart with weeping to come back to earth. And the angels were so angry that they flung me out into the middle of the heath on the top of Wuthering Heights, where I woke sobbing for joy. That will do to explain my secret as well as the other. I've no more business to marry Edgar Linton than I have to be in heaven. And if my wicked brother in there had not brought Heathcliff so low, I shouldn't have thought of it. It would degrade me to marry Heathcliff now, so he shall never know how I love him. And that, not because he's handsome, Nelly, but because he's more myself than I am. Whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same. And Linton's is as different as a moonbeam from lightning or frost from fire. Ere this speech ended, I became sensible of Heathcliff's presence. Having noticed a slight movement, I turned my head and saw him rise from the bench and steal out noiselessly. He had listened till he heard Catherine say it would degrade her to marry him, and then he stayed to hear no further. 
My companion, sitting on the ground, was prevented by the back of the settle from remarking his presence or departure. But I started and bade her hush. Why? I want to cheat my uncomfortable conscience and be convinced that Heathcliff has no notion of these things. He does not know what being in love is. I see no reason that he should not know, as well as you. And if you are his choice, he'll be the most unfortunate creature that ever was born. As soon as you have become Mrs. Linton, he loses friend and love and all. Have you considered how you'll bear the separation? And how he'll bear to be quite deserted in the world? Because Miss Catherine... He quite deserted. We separated. Who is to separate us, pray? Not as long as I live, Nelly, for no mortal creature. Every Linton on the face of the earth might melt into nothing before I could consent to forsake Heathcliff. Oh, that's not what I intend. That's not what I mean. I shouldn't be Mrs. Linton were such a price demanded. He'll be as much to me as he has been all his lifetime. Edgar must shake off his antipathy and tolerate him at least. He will when he learns my true feelings towards him. Nelly, I see now you think me a selfish wretch. But did it never strike you that if Heathcliff and I married, we should be beggars? Whereas if I marry Linton, I can aid Heathcliff to rise and place him out of my brother's power. With your husband's money, Miss Catherine? You'll find him not so pliable as you calculate upon. And though I'm hardly a judge, I think that's the worst motive you've given yet for being the wife of young Linton. It is not. It is the best. The others were the satisfaction of my whims. And for Edgar's sake, too, to satisfy him. This is for the sake of one who comprehends in his person my feelings to Edgar and myself. I cannot express it, but surely you and everybody have a notion that there is, or should be, an existence of yours beyond you. What were the use of my creation if I were entirely contained here? My great miseries in this world have been Heathcliff's miseries, and I watched and felt each from the beginning. My greatest thought of living is himself. If all else perished and he remained, I should still continue to be. And if all else remained and he were annihilated, the universe would turn to a mighty stranger. I should not seem part of it. My love for Linton is like the foliage in the woods. Time will change it, I'm well aware, as winter changes the trees. My love for Heathcliff resembles the eternal rocks beneath, a source of little visible delight, but necessary. Nelly, I am Heathcliff. He's always, always in my mind. Not as a pleasure, any more than I am always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. So don't talk of our separation again. It is impractical. HarperCollins is the copyright owner of this recording. HarperCollins has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of the United States and international copyright law to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, 
please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio has been provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and Associates. Network connectivity provided by UUNet Technologies and by MFS Datanet. Harper Audio presents Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. The New York Times says of this recording, several stars have joined voices dividing up passages from a classic work of fiction to compelling effect. against my inclination, I was persuaded to leave Wuthering Heights and accompany her here. For the space of half a year, the gunpowder lay as harmless as sand, because no fire came near to explode it. It ended on a mellow evening in September. I was coming from the garden with a heavy basket of apples which I'd been gathering when I heard a voice behind me say, Nellie, is that you? It was a deep voice and foreign in tone, yet there was something in the manner of pronouncing my name which made it sound familiar. Something stirred in the porch, and moving nearer, I distinguished a tall man dressed in dark clothes with dark face and hair. A ray fell on his features. The cheeks were sallow and half covered with black whiskers, the brows lowering, the eyes deep-set and singular. I remembered the eyes. What? You come back? Is it really you? Is it? Yes. Heathcliff. Are they at home? Where is she? Is she here? Speak. I wait to have one word with her, your mistress. Go and say some person from Gimmerton desires to see her. How will she take it? What will she do? The surprise bewilders me. It will put her out of her head. And you are Heathcliff, but altered. Nay, there's no comprehending it. Have you been for a soldier? Go and carry my message. I'm in hell till you do. Who is it, Mrs. Dean? Someone the mistress does not expect. That Heathcliff, you recollect him, sir, who used to live at Mr. Earnshaw's. What? The gypsy? The ploughboy? Why did you not say so to Catherine? Hush. You must not call him by those names, Master. She'd be sadly grieved to hear you. She was nearly heartbroken when he ran off. I guess his return will make a jubilee to her. Ere long, I heard the click of the latch, and Catherine flew upstairs, breathless and wild, too excited to show gladness. Indeed, by her face, you would rather have surmised an awful calamity. Oh, Edgar. Darling, Heathcliff's come back. He is. Well, don't strangle me for that. He never struck me as such a marvelous treasure. There is no need to be frantic. Oh, I know you didn't like him. Yet for my sake, you must be friends now. Shall I tell him to come up now? Here? Into the parlor? The kitchen is a more suitable place for him. 
No, I cannot sit in the kitchen. Set two tables here, Nellie. One for your master and Miss Isabella being gentry, the other for Heathcliff and myself being of the lower orders. Will that please you, dear? Or must I have a fire lighted somewhere else? If so, give directions. I'll run down and secure my guest. Oh, I'm afraid the joy is too great to be real. You bid him step up, Mrs. Dean. And Catherine, try to be glad without being absurd. The whole household need not witness the sight of your welcoming a runaway servant as a brother. For two months, the fugitives remained absent. In those two months, Mrs. Linton encountered and conquered the worst shock of what was denominated a brain fever. No mother could have nursed an only child more devotedly than Edgar tended her. Ah, I thought myself, she might recover, so waited on as she was. And there was double cause to desire it, for on her existence depended that of another. We cherished the hope that in a little while Mr. Linton's heart would be gladdened and his land secured from a stranger's grip by the birth of an heir. I should mention that Isabella sent to her brother a short note announcing her marriage with Heathcliff. It appeared dry and cold, but at the bottom was dotted in with pencil an obscure apology and an entreaty for kind remembrance and reconciliation, if her proceeding had offended him, asserting that she could not help it then, and being done, she had now no power to repeal it. Linton did not reply to this, I believe, and in a fortnight more I got a long letter which I considered odd, coming from the pen of a bride just out of the honeymoon. I'll read it, for I keep it yet. Any relic of the dead is precious if they were valued living. Dear Nellie, I came last night to Wuthering Heights and heard for the first time that Catherine has been and is yet very ill. I must not write to her, I suppose, and my brother is either too angry or too distressed to answer what I sent him. Still, I must write to somebody, and the only choice left me is you. Inform Edgar that I'd give the world to see his face again, that my heart returned to Thrushcross Grange in 24 hours after I left it, and is there at this moment, full of warm feelings for him and Catherine. I can't follow it through, and they need not expect me, and they may draw what conclusions they please. The remainder of the letter is for yourself alone. I want to ask you two questions. The first is, how did you contrive to preserve the common sympathies of human nature when you resided here? I cannot recognize any sentiment which those around share with me. The second question I have great interest in, it is this. Is Mr. Heathcliff a man? If so, is he mad? And if not, is he a devil? I shan't tell my reasons for making this inquiry, but I beseech you to explain, if you can, what I have married. That is, when you call to see me, and you must call, Nellie, very soon. Don't write, but come and bring me something from Edgar. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording. 
HarperCollins has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kHz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright law to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio has been provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and & Associates. Network connectivity provided by UUNet Technologies and by MFS Datanet. Harper Audio presents Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. The New York Times says of this recording, Several stars have joined voices dividing up passages from a classic work of fiction to compelling effect. There's a letter for you, Mrs. Linton. You must read it immediately because it wants an answer. It is from Mr. Heathcliff. There was a start and a troubled gleam of recollection and a struggle to arrange her ideas. She lifted the letter and seemed to peruse it, and when she came to the signature, she sighed. Yet still I found she had not gathered its import, for upon my desiring to hear her reply, she merely pointed to the name and gazed at me with mournful and questioning eagerness. Well, he wishes to see you. He's in the garden by this time, and impatient to know what answer I shall bring. Mrs. Linton bent forward and listened breathlessly. The minute after a step traversed the hall. The open house was too tempting for Heathcliff to resist walking in. Most likely he supposed that I was inclined to shirk my promise, and so resolved to trust to his own audacity. With straining eagerness, Catherine gazed toward the entrance of her chamber. He did not hit the right room directly. She motioned me to admit him, but he found it out ere I could reach the door, and in a stride or two was at her side and had her grasped in his arms. He neither spoke nor loosed his hold for some five minutes, during which period he bestowed more kisses than ever he gave in his life before, I dare say. But then my mistress had kissed him first, and I plainly saw that he could hardly bear for downright agony to look into her face. The same conviction had stricken him as me from the instant he beheld her that there was no prospect of ultimate recovery there. She was fated, sure to die. Oh, Cathy, oh, my life, how can I bear it? What now? You and Edgar have broken my heart, Heathcliff. And you both come to bewail the deed to me as if you were the people to be pitied. I shall not pity you, not I. You have killed me, and thriven on it, I think. How strong you are. How many years do you mean to live after I am gone? I wish I could hold you till we were both dead. I shouldn't care what you suffered. I care nothing for your sufferings. Why shouldn't you suffer? I do. Will you forget me? Will you be happy when I am in the earth? Will you say twenty years hence, 
That's the grave of Catherine Earnshaw. I loved her long ago and was wretched to lose her, but it is past. I've loved many others since. My children are dearer to me than she was. And at death I shall not rejoice that I am going to her. I shall be sorry that I must leave them. Will you say so, Heathcliff? Don't torture me till I'm as mad as yourself. Are you possessed with a devil to talk in that manner to me when you're dying? Do you reflect that all those words will be branded in my memory and eating deeper eternally after you've left me? You know you lie to say I have killed you. And, Catherine, you know that I could as soon forget you as my existence. Is it not sufficient for your infernal selfishness that while you are at peace, I shall writhe in the torments of hell? I shall not be at peace. I'm not wishing you greater torment than I have, Heathcliff. I only wish us never to be parted. And should a word of mine distress you hereafter, think I feel the same distress underground. And for my own sake, forgive me. Come here and kneel down again. You never harmed me in your life. Nay, if you nurse anger, that will be worse to remember than my harsh words. Won't you come here again? Do. Heathcliff went to the back of her chair and leant over, but not so far as to let her see his face, which was livid with emotion. She bent round to look at him. He would not permit it. Turning abruptly, he walked to the fireplace, where he stood silent with his back towards us. Mrs. Linton's glance followed him suspiciously. Every movement woke a new sentiment in her. After pause and a prolonged gaze, she resumed, addressing me in accents of indignant disappointment. Oh, you see, Nelly, he would not relent a moment to keep me out of the grave. That is how I am loved. Well, never mind. That is not my Heathcliff. I shall love mine yet and take him with me. He's in my soul. And the thing that irks me most is this shattered prison, after all. I'm tired, tired of being enclosed here. I'm wearying to escape into that glorious world and to be always there. Not seeing it dimly through tears and yearning for it through the walls of an aching heart. But really with it and in it. Nelly, you think you are better and more fortunate than I. In full health and strength. You are sorry for me. Very soon that will be altered. I shall be sorry for you. I shall be incomparably beyond and above you all. I wonder he won't be near me. I thought he wished it. Heathcliff, dear, you should not be sullen now. Do come to me, Heathcliff. You teach me now how cruel you've been. Cruel and false. Why did you despise me? Why did you betray your own heart, Cathy? I have not one word of comfort. You deserve this. You have killed yourself. Yes, you may kiss me and cry and wring out my kisses and tears. They'll blight you. They'll damn you. You loved me. Then what right had you to leave me? 
What right? Answer me. For the poor fancy that you felt for Linton. Because misery and degradation and death and nothing that God or Satan could inflict would have parted us. You of your own will did it. I have not broken your heart. You have broken it. And in breaking it, you have broken mine. So much the worse for me that I am strong. Do I want to live? What kind of living will it be when you... Oh, God. Would you like to live with your soul in the grave? Let me alone. Let me alone. If I've done wrong, I'm dying for it. It is enough. You left me too. But I won't upbraid you. I forgive you. Forgive me. It's hard to forgive and to look at those eyes and feel those wasted hands. Kiss me again and don't let me see your eyes. I forgive what you've done to me. I love my murderer, but yours. How can I? HarperCollins is the copyright owner of this recording. HarperCollins has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright law to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio has been provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly & Associates. Network connectivity provided by UUNet Technologies and by MFS DataNet.